Welcome to Habs Unfiltered. This independent podcast is featured on the Hockey Writers and iHeartRadio, bringing you honest and unfiltered entertainment and discussion on the Montreal Canadiens and hockey news. Your hosts, Matt Smith, Treg Wilson, and Blaine Putney are proud to be one of your trusted sources. If you are talking about it, so are we. Welcome to Habs Unfiltered. This independent podcast is featured on the Hockey Writers and iHeartRadio, bringing you honest and unfiltered entertainment and discussion on the Montreal Canadiens and hockey news. Your hosts, Matt Smith, Treg Wilson, and Blaine Putney, are proud to be one of your trusted sources. If you are talking about it, so are we. Do you or someone you love obsess over the Habs and they aren't even a fan of the team? Is your social media filled with old jokes and pathetic attempts at trolling? Then you have HOD, Habs Obsessive Disorder. From the makers of Bergy Arms comes 3 to 1. 3 to 1 is specially formulated to cause a temporary choking sensation, which will remind you that your team hasn't won a playoff series since the invention of HD television. Side effects may include a desire to shave your head and grow a goatee, a lack of fashion sense, an uncontrollable urge to say, but Tavares was hurt, pretending every head coach this century doesn't call your team soft, an uncontrollable urge to choke in the playoffs, and a realization that your ability to have an inferiority complex while simultaneously being obnoxious while never winning is why you're found undesirable. Ask your doctor if 3-1 to one is right for you. Welcome to Habs Unfiltered, episode 228. I'm your host, Blaine Putney, and I'm joined now by my co-host, Treg Wilson. Good evening. And our special guest, Marco D'Amico, the current member of The Hockey Flow and Hockey SL, segments on TSN 690, bilingual, and a Quebecer. Welcome to the show. <laughs> Thanks for having me, guys. I, I just... I. I I feel so good not being alone anymore. Oh, you know, like I could, I feel you on that. I, like, uh, I feel very ethnically isolated myself being in the West Island right now without any Italians or French people, apparently. Um, but seem- yeah, just, you know, uh, it's sometimes good to come out of your shell, but it's also good to have that little bit of familiarity. Not to mention, and- it must feel pretty good being a West Islander and having West Island boy at the helm of the Habs. I actually, I grew up in, L- in Laval. My, my fiance is a Beaconsfield girl. She went to Beaconsfield High, which is where Kent Hughes graduated from. His picture is now being paraded in that school, which is kind of weird. But uh, yeah, it was definitely uh, fun to see a new twist on what it meant to have a bilingual GM. And uh, hopefully this continues to develop the idea of what, uh, you know, the mold of a general manager could be for the Montreal Canadiens uh, moving forward. So I was happy with it. It was definitely out of the box in terms of what we're used to. And so for that, uh, now uh, we see what he can do and what uh, what decisions he takes with this club, but definitely encouraging. So 
we're going uh, in this episode we're going to talk a little bit about <clears throat> about the uh, the last game with the avalanche we'll go over a little bit about the prospects because you've just released your draft list and there's a bunch of trade rumors with the canadians for some odd reason with the deadline coming up and the habs being in the basement i guess people are going to look at poaching so there yeah. we go um definitely poaching makes a ton of sense when you're the this is a very unique situation. It, it, it has, it has, I think it's only happened once in the last 10 years where a team that made the, the Stanley cup final didn't make the playoffs the year after, I believe it was like the devils or something. Dallas um, did it the uh, last year. Yeah. Last year. But the, I mean, last year is just a weird, yeah. weird occurrence, but yeah, exactly. Just like Dallas. So it's, it's rare. And Dallas didn't sell Dallas was in it till the end. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a very weird situation for Montreal to be in and to go and have such immediate, uh, you know, uh, performances to base yourself on, like guys like Lekin and Sherratt all increased their value because of the playoff runs the last two years. And now, boom, uh, potential full rebuild. Uh, it's definitely going to be interesting in terms of uh, being able to talk about those trade rumors. Well, I mean, with uh, anyone who's into prospects and into the draft, this makes it a little bit more exciting because this could give uh, Hughes a few more bullets to shoot with in that draft. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, what we're, uh, what everybody is saying is that the 2022 draft is a little weak. I, I don't, I don't necessarily agree with that. I think anybody who says that is looking at the first five picks and looking for a generational talent and you ain't going to find one. Um, what you are going to find is a shitload of depth though. And I throw this akin to 2017 where People were really bummed out with Nico Heischer and Nolan Patrick, and nobody saw a generational defenseman in Kale McCarr literally sitting there. Like, no one could have imagined that he was going to do this. There's no one. If you say yes, you're alive. So this is why I always state when we're looking at it, we're thinking, okay, what are comparables? What, what could we do here? If I told you that this draft had a Patrice Bergeron clone, a Jonathan Taze clone, and a Braden Point clone going one, two, three, you'd be like, well, I, I could deal with that. That seems like a pretty good draft. But it's not being positioned that way because Shane Wright isn't blowing up the CHL like everybody thought he would. And to his credit, I think Shane Wright needs to pick it up. He had two assists yesterday. He's playing as we speak right now. Um, he's definitely picked it up. Like his, his play has gotten much, much better. But team everybody's looking for points everybody's looking for you know like Savoy who's got like 60 points in 40 games they're looking for that kind of output and you know if, if that's what you know people want to see with the draft and yeah it's going to be disappointing but if you're a team that has multiple first round picks then you're in for a doozer because between 15 and 32 is much deeper than last year and I think that's the strength of this draft is that second half of the first round and the second round. And so this is why it's imperative that Montreal, like really that Ken Hughes in this case really maximizes the value that he has, you know, Ben Sherrod or Terry Lekkinen, Chris Weidman. Um, there's an opportunity here. If Drouin wants to move to trade Drouin, uh, you know, a lot of people have talked about potentially moving Tyler to Foley. I personally wouldn't, but if that trade were ever to happen, say, I don't know, Calgary, you know, Daryl Sutter, they know each all those, other. All those former Canucks. Yeah, I mean, former Canucks as well, and and they just they need that top six right wing that can score goals as well. It's just 
it fits. And, you know, as I tell everybody, there's, it's fit, it's the return, it's timing. So Ken Hughes has a lot of tough decisions to make, but definitely if we're going to talk prospects and we're going to talk about what this draft would mean just by looking at it right now and seeing what's available, definitely acquiring more first round picks should be imperative because what the Canadians lack, there are a lot of in the tail end of the first round. And I want to get into that as well, but Trey, you have a question. I do. I don't know. You looked, you looked like you had a question, <laughs> that face you made. It must be the new, uh, uh, the, the new face without the beard. It just threw me off. No, I, 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 uh, I don't really have a question. I was going to state that it's, I find it uh, funny that the Canadians are in the position they're in right now, because it's actually going to work out better for them with the new management coming in. And the fact that they can sell off all these players at the deadline, whereas if they were like Dallas and they were still fighting for a spot, you'd kind of just be slowing the inevitable, which will be an implosion a year or two later. Uh, so really them going to the cup final and dropping so far in the standings this year, is actually kind of a blessing in disguise because now they can get those first round picks. Now Bergevin was never one for getting more first round picks for some reason. He uh, was happy with the one he had and wanted to collect 4,002 second round picks. Um and the seventh. Don't forget those sevens. No. The only time Bergevin ever acquired a, se- a first-round pick was given to him in an offer sheet. Yeah. He never, ever <laughs> traded for a first-round pick. And then he basically traded his first-ever time trading a first-round pick to get Christian Dvorak, which I think in the long run will be actually a good move. But uh, uh, he's even I think actually... Them. Yeah, the worst-case scenario, if it doesn't work out in Montreal, I think they can at least get a first back. Yeah. So... <clears throat> So I, I never really had a question. I was just going to say that uh, it'll be interesting if they do get multiple first round picks just because of that, because it's been so long since the seen Montreal pick more than once in the first round. I don't even. Patrick Reddy? Patrick Reddy? 2007. Yeah. 2007. Yeah. 2007. And then before that, before that, it was 2002. Yeah. So, I mean, and having the draft in Montreal, if they actually have it in Montreal. Um, Lego. <laughs> Just saying, uh, it's possible. Uh, it'll be interesting. It'll be good. And then they have a chance, if they wanted to see a guy that they want at, say, 12 or 13, they could take their two draft picks and trade up or whatever the hell they want to do. So uh, far, a GM that doesn't mind trading up for a player he likes. Yeah. Isn't that which, fun? Which Gorton has shown he's willing to do. Yeah. So, like, oh, I'm all in. Draft yeah. strategy is a thing that the Canadians really, really sucked at uh, for the longest time. And I think... This is the call it your pants down kind of look that Bergevin and Timmins always had at the end of the draft when everybody would be like, we knew you had interest in so-and-so and so-and-so and and Timmins would be like, yes, yes, we did. And then, you know, he went uh, three or four spots before us and you sit there and you're like, okay, but you had like four fifths, four fifth round picks, three sixth round picks, like three second, like you have. 15 picks in a draft and you can't fucking sacrifice one to move up. There's my first F bomb. You can't just sacrifice one to move up. They always like, trade I, it back. Exactly. And it's like, do you have such a lack of faith in Trevor Timmons that you keep trading back or trading for like future drafts? Once you get to the point where the pick that you so desperately wanted to keep, you get to the point and you realize ah, there's nothing interesting here. I'm going to trade for next year. Here's a third this year, and I'm giving you a third next year. And he did this constantly. 
Instead of, hey, I got two seconds in 2017. I really like Maxim Contois. Um, hold up. Let me call like the Rangers who are picking right before the Ducks. Um, how's about our second, the highest second, and I'll throw in a fourth. We only have four. Yeah, that kind of yeah. strategy, uh, they've, they've never had that killer instinct in a draft. Never, never. So, Bob Gainey had it. I he loved did. Bob Gainey at the draft. But mm, the balls it took for Gainey to say carry price at five. He was proven right in the long run, but yeah, that was not yeah. a consensus pick. Especially at a time when they didn't think they needed a goalie. No one, no one was like, oh, they don't need a goalie. They exactly. Halak, they got this guy, they got... Uh, do you think uh, do you think Florida regrets picking uh, Spencer Knight despite the no. uh, you know like it's no. value yeah. is value at this point in this league and you never know what's going to happen to your asset and best player available is a thing now yeah on that point I want to go back to this draft and I want to see what your thoughts are on the tiers of the draft because you've made a point to, uh, of telling people that this isn't that bad of a draft so I'd like to oh. get an idea of your tiers. You know, okay. first first liners, second liners, that kind of thing. Like, where do you see each tier? Like, at what pick do you see? Like, one to five, and then it goes down, then up to, like, 15? One to, one to six has first-line potential. Top pair potential, first-line potential. And this is today. Yeah. The draft is in six months from now. Uh, a lot can change. Um, and the thing, the reality, the fact is, a lot of the drafts are influenced by playoffs, and Memorial Cup and U18s. And then by then, you have an idea of what's going on. Because, for example, Mason McTavish was somewhere in the middle of the, of, of the first round at this point last year. And then, boom, after U18s, he's third overall. And he was ranked fifth and then was drafted third, almost like Kakaniemi, basically the same thing. So I think right now, one to six, you have first-line talent, first-pair talent. And that's really good because I don't think I could have said that last year. I think that there's good top six talent um, and some players that do have top line talent fell because they're not big enough, like William Eklund. But in this draft, I think Shane Wright, Logan Cooley, Matthew Savoy, uh, Simon, Simon Nanish um, definitely are the crux. I'd even add uh, Yurash Slavkovsky, who really looks like a Miko Rantanen clone to me. I love watching this guy. Um, and then the one guy that I'm going to slide under there that, you know, everybody is looking at Joachim Kamel. I, and I do like him. I just, I feel like he's kind of a one trick pony. He's got the shot in the hands and basically the transition game, the defensive game. It's not like, he doesn't think the game to, to the point of being elite. I think he's going to be a top six player, but I don't know if he's going to be a consistent top line guy. Frank Nazar from the U S national development team is someone everybody's got to keep an eye out on because between him and Yurishek, those are my two wild cards for that sixth spot and being first. And this is why I say by January, you know, to June, by June, I could turn around and say, maybe it's a top eight first liners. And this is why I say this draft is much deeper than we think. Yes. You might not have the general generational talent at one, but you're going all the way to eight in terms of potential first line talent. And so I, to, to me, I, that's, that's what I find intriguing. And then you have a range from eight to 12, which is like borderline, like really high end second line potential first line. Like if, if they surpass expectations and you have guys like Brad Lambert, Joachim Kamel, uh, Daniel Yurov, uh, Ivan Miroslavchenko, 
um, Connor Geeky. Uh, these are guys that I think are going to go right there and they can even climb back into the, into the top tier. It's just, they haven't shown the aptitudes that I think would be, you know, worthy of the trajectory of her first line talent. And I guess that's subject to interpretation and everybody's going to have different views on this. And that's the beauty of the draft. Whenever there's no consensus, people call it weak. I say the opposite. When there's no consensus, that means that there's, there's a group of individuals, be they two, three, six, ten, that are so close together in, in, in talent. And if you can measure that talent as being superstar, first line, second line, I think there's a lot of first line potential. And I think getting into the draft, there's a lot of second line potential that goes well into the, into the double letters, uh, excuse, sorry, the double, uh, the double digits. So I find that impressive. And you really you have your first two tiers. From there, I think you have a third tier that goes 15, 25. And I think that's where this draft is vastly superior to last year. 15, 25, like no one's going to be reaching at pick 10 this year. There ain't no Tyler Boucher at 10th overall from Ottawa. Uh, when Cole Sillinger and Matthew Coronado are right there, uh, there's going to be none of that. There's going to be no guessing, in my opinion. Uh, you know, it's, it's, there is so much defensive talent in this draft outside of the top 10. Like, I, I know we talk about the big two in, in Yurchek and Nemich. But then you have uh, Denton Maitechuk uh, playing for, for Moose Jaw that looks incredible. Almost a point-per-game defenseman just really burning it up. Uh, you have Pavel Mintyukov playing in the OHL this year as a rookie. Uh, he's really good as well, another defenseman. Um, Casey Seamus, who plays with the U.S. national development team, has a lot of – I see a lot of similarities in, in like, uh, you know, Ryan Ellis, Quinn Hughes-type mix. Um, and the list goes on. Really, like I can, I can keep going well into the second round, um, and these, this is the right timing if you're a team that has an extra first, or if you're one of those teams that gets kicked out of the playoffs, and you're not in the 30 range, and you end up picking like 23, 24. There's a lot of value there, so I think this draft is going to surprise a lot of people. I, I remember last year, this time we were talking about 2021, and everybody was saying it was a weak draft try and get 2022 for first round picks. Don't worry about this year. Uh, it's a crap shoot anyway. And lo and behold, six months later, heralding these players as like first line ta- talent, like McTavish or Kent Johnson, Owen Power now is an uncontested, soon to be first uh, defenseman. Um, Matt Beniers is a future first line center now. Like Funny how the narrative has changed because we've had more time to watch these players and they've been given the time to grow. The, uh, the, the point on that, I would say they had somewhat of a point with the 2021 draft saying we're, but uh, they had to say, we're not sure what these kids are because so many of them only played like 10, 12, 15 games. Many other playoffs were canceled. Some had no seasons whatsoever. So I can understand some, uh, lack of consensus in that draft. I wouldn't have said that it's a bad draft, just that we don't know what we're going to expect out of these kids right away. And for this year's draft, I want to know how much of an impact missing a full year of progression prior to your draft will impact them and why it could be why Shane Wright is seen as someone who is floundering or not producing to the level because he's missing up an entire season yeah i mean if you look at the players right now that are, are really getting ahead in the ohl 
um, none of them have ever played in the OHL before, right? It's none of these players had their 16 year old season. This is all, all of them are 17 and up. Um, so it's a little different. So you can look at guys like Shane Wright, uh, Ty Nelson, who was the first overall pick last year. Uh, and then you had um, uh, Musty this year. Um, so it, it's, it's definitely different uh, when you look at the, the, the optics, but there aren't many OHL players that are pushing to the top of this draft. It's only Shane Wright. Minty Yukov is the only one that's in most people's top 20 right now. And he was playing in Russia last year. So we see it. It's there. Like no one's there's Del Bell Belouz right now in the OHL that looks like an absolute monster uh, that nobody's talking about. And the reason why he's doing well is because he didn't do anything last year. He basically just hit the gym the whole time and he looks great. He had the skills to begin with. So when you compare it to a guy like Shane Wright and you're looking at him on the ice, he thinks the game elite. He plays the game elite. He's not flashy. He's not going to look like McDavid. They're comparing him to Bergeron because Bergeron, I don't know if anybody ever saw Bergeron play before he became a superstar, but it was not overly impressive he's not a flashy player he's effective and he was more effective and if you go look at his junior stats he was more effective at the nhl than he was in junior and that's what a lot of people are saying about shane wright he's going to be more effective in the nhl than he is in junior shane wright still the bona fide number one guy yeah i think right now you have to give the benefit of the doubt mainly one because of what we talked about 18 months without you know consistent hockey is going to hurt everybody. So you have to adjust your evaluation of the player in accordance to that. You know, I think anybody who drafts Shane Wright, unless he absolutely explodes this year, I think anybody who drafts Shane Wright is sending him back to, to, to Kingston next year. I think that's the wise decision. He lost a year, send him back, no rush. And, you know, all intents and purposes, I think the team that's going to draft him this year is going to suck next year as well, because right now the bottom 10 or the bottom five of the league you're looking at Arizona, you're looking at Montreal, you're looking at Seattle. Uh, I think Philly is going to join them real soon. And then, yeah. you know, these are going to be teams that are going to be retooling, rebuilding. So I, I think it would be a smart decision. And, and, and to me, I honestly think that this, this is the same slander that uh, Owen Power faced last year where people were like, oh, he wouldn't even have gone in the top five in 2020. Uh, and here he is going number one. And uh, Matt Beneers wasn't even worthy of the top 10 in 2020 and he's going second overall. That's a very different tune we're singing this year. And that's why I always say, you know, uh, everything is relative and you have to actually see these players evolve because it's, you're not drafting a player today and thinking what he's doing today is going to be exactly what he does in the show because we've seen disappointment after disappointment. I think what you need to look at are the aptitudes. And if anybody actually watches Shane Wright, and watches how he plays the game and how he puts pucks on silver platters for teammates time after time after time. Like he, it's incredible how much he creates that just doesn't get converted on. People yeah. would lose their minds. People would you go watch crazy. five of his games and you'll see at least 15 opportunities that were wide open with, chances that they completely miss that he had. Set I don't up. understand why he's not playing with Chromiak on a consistent basis. I, I understand wanting to split the line the lines up because he's more defensively responsible, but to his points detriment, a lot of people are like, oh, he's unimpressive. Like, 
then watch the damn games. You know, that's that's my biggest issue. Whereas you 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 then you have a guy like Matthew Savoy who is burning the WHL alive, and a lot of people don't see how he affects a game either. So they just see the points and think he's a dynamo. He's offensively dynamic. He's well, I mean, yeah, hockey DB, elite prospects, you name it. Any you just look at those numbers, you know, yeah. it's it's unfortunate that people would do that where it's just a triage of points per game based on date of birth, and that would define their draft board. I don't agree with that. I think that you need to look at what makes them likely to make it in the show. Like Matthew Savoy is getting all kinds of flack because people don't think that he's going to be able to produce at five on five in the NHL. And that's because he's half his points are on the power play in the WHL. Yeah, but that's because Winnipeg they get so many power plays because they play such a fast tempo game and they burn the teams they play that give them power plays. So it's not his fault. If they didn't get so many power plays, you probably have more points at five on five. It's that's why I'm saying it's important to, to watch these players because anybody who's watching them wouldn't call this draft week. Is there anyone in the top five or say, let's say Montreal picks top five, which is probably what's going to happen. Yep. Can any of those players step in and play in the NHL next year? I hope not. And the reason why I say this is because I don't want any of them. Like this, this top five would be absolutely stupendous to put in the American Hockey League next year. This is what I hate. This idea that you can't take a player from Canadian major junior and throw them in the AHL. Like I, if you're a top, if you're a first round pick, like in Europe, if you're a first round pick, you have transfer, uh, you have like a, a transfer uh, exception where you can go directly to the AHL. You can sign your ELC and your contract is voided in Europe and stuff like that. I don't understand why that doesn't exist in the CHL because think of how many players you're holding back because there are greedy owners in Canadian major junior. It's incredible. Could you have imagined, I'll give you like an example that we can go back. Galchenyuk. Think of how Galchenyuk would have developed if he would have gone to Hamilton first, or I think at that point it was the ice caps, but regardless, instead of going back to Sarnia, like, yes, he put up two points per game in Sarnia when he went back right after getting drafted. But I feel like a year or two in Laval or, you know, Hamilton or or St. John would have done him wonders to extend his career long-term and learn the basics so he was more well-rounded well, look at the if argument with uh Kotkaniemi the argument same concept should have stayed in Finland for another year versus coming straight over I don't think so I, I think that Pori was a dumpster fire his father got yeah. fired uh they were last in the league uh players were saying all kinds of weird things about the team I think the Montreal Canadiens just got greedy and uh Mark Bergevin started drinking his own Kool-Aid about the player and I this is why you have to not think in the moment when it comes to prospects. Yes, he looks good in training camp, but just like William Eklund in San Jose this year, who looked fantastic and even started the season and looked great for San Jose, think long-term. Send him back. Yeah. What yeah. I would have done, I would have put him in Laval. I would have put Kotkaniemi in Laval, and he would have stayed there until he was well over a point per game and physically uh, ready and, and the, the, you know, the and they're making the same mistake with Caulfield. I feel like yeah. they were yo-yoing Caulfield before the rash of injuries. Um, and, you know, Bergevin, in his last press conference, he said, like, they called up Caulfield from Laval to see where he's at. I'm going to stop. I'm gonna, here's another F-bomb, but what the fuck, man? <laughs> you don't do that. 
you do not take a prospect out of his out, out of the area of growth simply to see how he's doing. You know how you evaluate how he's doing? You send a fucking scout to that game. You go watch that game. It's a metro line down from your condo. Yeah. Just go to the go to Place Belle and see. I and think it's a safe like bet. The temple's there. Yeah, yeah like, I, I think it's a safe bet that he's going to be going back to Laval as soon as he's off the COVID list. I think so too. I think that makes sense. And I think Ken Hughes is far more, I think Ken Hughes understands what it means to develop kids uh, at this stage in the NHL. Uh, and I think his experience in doing so is far more relevant today than Bergevin's maybe was uh, because he's already gotten one of his sons drafted and he's about to get his other son drafted. So he knows all about it. Um, and he's helped so many players get drafted. Like the work he did with Joey Valeno, uh, he was seen as he was the exceptional player in Quebec. He's still the yeah. only one in the queue, right? And he dropped off. It was like Aturati, where he started first overall, and all everybody thought he was going to drop out of the second round. And Ken Hughes was on him, getting him to all kinds of, of conditioning and, and strength and, and skating classes. And it's paid off wonderfully because now he looks like he was he should have been a bona fide top 10 pick in that draft. So I think you know, you could trust Kent Hughes and his appreciation of analytics and skill. And I think that's going to translate with more patience with these younger players, more resources for their development. And that's why I honestly believe that if they do draft in the top five, the best thing to do is to either leave them in amateur hockey or bring them to Laval. That's why I think the uh, bringing in an agent will help the Canadians with their development because an agent's job is to, uh, to ensure that his clients develop. He has to put in that time. He has to understand what each one needs individually. And how do you do that? How do you figure it out? Well, you use the analytics that you have on hand. So he had an analytics department with his agency. So he already knows how to use analytics, how to apply them to a development program for each individual player, as opposed to the cookie cutter approach that uh, Bergevin had used early on in his tenure with the Canadians. Absolutely. Guys, the Canadians don't even have a skills coach. Like how? No. Like how? They don't have a skating coach. The Toronto Maple Leafs have Barbara Underhill, who did wonders with Suzuki in one summer. Could you imagine if they had a skating coach? Like, it's not hard. Shell Amelay is about to retire, and he's in Montreal. You want a skating coach that can teach you how to, how to, how to create a powerful stride and, and effortless skating? You have a gold medalist in your backyard hire that this is like out of the box thinking this is why i like an agent because they don't care about the politics of hockey they go and get the best candidate for their prospect so that they can guarantee higher earnings at a later date like that's what you do there there's no cap on staff you can spend as much as you want on as many staff as you want so you're one of the richest programs in the world for hockey spend the money yeah and, and it's embarrassing to me how little, how small their scouting staff is. It's embarrassing to me how they had three, three employees, three in the entire developmental side of, of the Montreal Canadiens. Um, that's in 2022. That's, that's just unacceptable. And it, it really like it breeds or it becomes evident when you look at, you know, how the Canadians have been able to develop players over the long term. This is why when we talk about the draft and I look about the, the draft, I'm always, you know, I always say a range in terms of potential because there's always the notion that teams are going to mess players up. 
And with Montreal, it's almost become a, a Russian roulette thing, right? So you have to be you have to be careful in how you gauge it. Where I think things are going to be different is that you have two guys in Hughes and in Gorton that strongly believe in bringing up players slowly. Use that Detroit method. Yeah. Uh, like you of, have, you have guys like Kako, you have guys like Lafreniere that are no brainers. Lafreniere had no business going back to the queue. Couldn't be sent to Hartford. He's going to play with the Rangers. Kako, same thing. He had nothing to learn in the league. He broke their under 18 scoring record. Like, Nothing to do, brought him in. But Niels Lundqvist and Condre Miller stayed in, in college and in, in Sweden for two extra years. No yep. problem. Braden Schneider finished his, his junior and is only now getting called up to the Rangers after playing most of the season in Hartford. That's what I'm talking about. So to do that, you need to have your players in place on your team so that you're not doing what Bergevin did, which was desperately plug holes with prospects that weren't ready because he couldn't fill out a roster. That's my biggest issue. You look at Victor Mete. That was the biggest thing. Couldn't get a top four left defenseman. Let's stick Victor Mete in there. Would Victor Mete have developed into a top four if they hadn't done that? Who knows? But he definitely had the potential to be a more impactful NHLer than he is right now. That's that's the best way I could put it. Kakanyami, same concept, right? Plakanitz was retiring, didn't feel like he was up to it. There was a hole in the third line. They threw Kakaniemi there because they didn't go and sign a third line center in the summer. Now, Treg, what did you think about Mete? You th- you have you have some thoughts. Mete's great between blue line and blue line. Yeah, that's absolutely. It. I, I believe that he's a great transition defenseman. Get him in the offensive zone. He doesn't know what to do. Get him in a defensive zone. He's not big enough or strong enough to do much of anything. That that's my view on Mete. And that's where the development could have helped a Maybe, little bit. <clears throat> with Met days they brought him up and put him right on the first line by Weber thought Weber's big toughness and size will counteract his not so much and it doesn't work that way it put Weber out of place all the time it made Weber friggin' run around the defensive zone trying to cover everybody and it just didn't work uh whether Mete would have been a top I don't think he would have been a top four but he could have been maybe a more productive offensive defenseman um because, you know, he does have the wheels. He does have the transition. He can move the puck. It's just when he got to the offensive zone, he had no idea what to do. And that's what hurt him. And he never Absolutely. learned what to do. He never learned what to do. And then you uh, look was, at Suzuki. Yeah. He played another year in junior in, uh, junior hockey. He developed his game a little Good. bit more. Uh, he came back. He got traded to the Canadians. They went to the camp. And instead of leaving him on the roster, they sent mm-hmm. him back to junior for a second year. And he, he's now exploding. And it's like what Marco said earlier about the Canadian major junior. Just think how Lafreniere could possibly be even better if he could play in Hartford. Yes. Uh, because he's right. You have players who are playing in the Q or the WHL who there's no reason for them to be there anymore. Galchenyuk was a, was a good example. There was no reason for him to be. So he was not learning anything in Sarnia. He was not improving on anything in Sarnia because he was scoring at will. You know, exactly. it was just, and you stunt his development because he's not good enough for the NHL, but he's definitely too good for where he's at now. You need that spot in the middle, which is the AHL. Uh, and that's why I think some European players have it better because they have the choice. They can stay there. They can go to the NHL. They can go to the AHL. It all depends on where they're going to develop better. And 
going back to this draft where we talk about uh, uh, the people not playing in the OHL and stuff like that, I think that's why we're seeing a lot of European players in the top 15 and a lot of these drafts is because they got to play a whole season. You got to see what they could do and they got to develop their skills better than say guys in the OHL. Well, yeah. the uh, so, I it's, mean, is what the it only is. guy to me that really surprises me because he's dropping like a stone, but uh, yeah, well, I mean, not playing that his, well this year either. Exactly. <laughs> and I think it's, you know, he had some long COVID issues as well. And now that now he's, he's turning it up right now. Hmm. But he's turning it up in the VHL, which is the second division in the KHL. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to see him get called up to the KHL because that's already telling in and of itself. Like, why isn't he getting called up? Like, the team he plays for isn't the deepest team in the KHL. So it doesn't make sense that, like, Danila Yurov, although he's only playing, like, three minutes a game, is in the KHL and that Marishnichenko is not. Like, I, I don't yeah. understand that. But, you know, when you look at this draft, the WHL is the is the league in Canada that's producing the most amount of, play, of buzz right now yeah. for first round talent, you know, and they didn't play that much, but they played consistently in the time they did. Um, and I think that's where the benefit lies is that not only are they standing out now, but the WHL is the league in which most resembles the NHL in terms of style. Yeah. And that's where that that's why scouts have Savoie, Geeky, Matejchuk. Um, you know, guys like that rank so high, like Matt's lingering is, is rising as well. You're going to see a lot of that because it, they just in doubt, you go with what you know, and you look for transferability of skill. And that happens a lot in the WHL. OHL has, I think three players right now that are ranked in the first round unanimously. And one of them is Russian. So that's already, not, that's not right. They're not helping themselves. And the Q, this could possibly be the worst Q draft in a long time uh, because there's a serious chance that they only have two players in the first round. Uh, and there's even possibility of only having one as opposed to last year when they had like four and the year before that, where they had another three or four. So it's, it's not a good, you know, it's not a good year for, for Canadian major junior. And I think, as you pointed out, that these, these stopping goes in the queue of a no season in the OHL and the short 24-game playoff format that they had in the WHL, I don't think that that was conducive to the development of these players. Some are, you know, doing well and some are, are really taking off, but it's understandable that you have to evaluate these players in consequence, right? It would be like trying to come up with a top 10 a year ago for this class because yeah. that's where a lot of them are. So that it's it's hard but where i would where i think this benefits the canadians is the canadians do decide to go on a retool or a rebuild or whatever you want to call it and agree to not be competitive for the next let's say a range of two to four years then sending back whoever they draft is not actually a bad thing i feel like it doesn't hurt them and especially if it's like a logan cooley uh for example like he's going to the ncaa let him go to the ncaa like you're talking about playing against physical opponents and, and being in a situation where you have to, you know, battle through adversity. That's key. I mean, Jonathan Taze played two years in the NCAA before jumping ship. And then, you know, he was what he was. And then that's what I would want, right? Like a Simon Nemich uh, that's playing in Slovakia. Uh, I wouldn't mind bringing him to Laval and keeping him in Laval for a while because Laval, if, if all, if everything goes well, Laval could have a very stacked defensive unit as well. And, 
he would be right at the top of that. So it's, there's a lot to look at, but I would not be in a rush. I think there's maybe two players that are NHL ready and they're, they shouldn't go first overall or in the top three. Now let's say Montreal finishes with a, they get the third overall pick and you have, you're sitting there and you have to choose between Cooley and Nemich. Which one do you think is going to be the bigger impact for the Canadians long-term? Jeez. That's what that's, I really don't want to draft third, man. Like that's, I know a lot of people will be like, we suck at third. Okay. Well you suck too. It's, it's, the, <laughs> it's not the pick, it's the draft class. And Trevor Timmons isn't the one making the picks no more. So let's chill. But I will say, you know, I, it really comes to what you want to do as an organization. If the Canadians decide we're going to suck for like three, four years, there is no top right-handed shot defenseman in next year's draft. There is none. There's two left-handed shots and they look to be in the teeter end of the top 10, because right now we're talking about Bedard, Michkov, Fantili, Vorsky, Jaeger, Benson, all forwards. So at that point, I just named you like six players off the top that are going to go in the top 10. So you already know there's no Makar coming. There's no, so if you have a guy like Nemes, he's going to be a top 10 player. Um, you know, it's interesting to me. It's, 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 I would be, it, it would be the, the equivalent of choosing between prime Jonathan Tays and I would say a Roman Yossi light equivalent. Like it's just, whew. It would be tough, but I think if Montreal decides to go long-term, uh, I wouldn't be opposed to them picking Nemich over Cooley. I also think Cooley is going to go second overall, though. Uh, even though I have Matt, Matthew Savoy ahead of him, I think that Matthew Savoy has legit Braden point ability. Now, if you were to ask me, Matthew Savoy and, and Simon Nemich, I guarantee you uh, that GMs would probably go Nemich on this yeah. one. Simply because, because of... Well, I mean, yeah, the size is definitely one thing, but also the Canadians have Nick Suzuki. It's not like when they drafted Cock and Yemming, they had nobody. Like, you can, you can sign a top six center. You can trade for a top six center. Can you trade for a number one right D? No. Um, <laughs> no. No, no, you cannot. So this is why I look at it. The, the, the only thing I liked about Trevor Timmons' approach when he drafted was the – notion of positional value and what that means to, to building a team. So it, it is really interesting when you look at Nemich or year check and that they're both right-handed and both are trending towards top pair status. Uh, in fact, um, I believe it was today, Nemich just broke Lubomir Viznowski's uh, Slovakian record uh, for U18 and U20 scoring. And just to, so to give everybody an idea, Brant Clark, who went eighth overall to the Kings last year, uh, played in Slovakia, and Nemec is outpacing him right now in terms of points and time on ice and everything. And, you know, if a player like that went eighth overall, people thought he slid. Um, I think that Nemec is the real deal too. So it's... And it's he's going to the Olympics. Problem. And he's going to the Olympics. It's a, it's a really good problem to have, in my opinion. And there's going to be the U18s in May. And he, if I'm not mistaken, Nemec is a 2024 born, or sorry, 2024 born. Well, 2004 born. So yeah, he could, he's eligible for, he only turns 18 uh, February 15th. So he's eligible. It's incredible. He has 21 points in 30 games as a 17 year old in the Slovakian league. It's never been done before. So I think 
he is the best European defenseman to come out since Maurice Sider. And you just, you need to take that, in my opinion, if you're picking third overall. It's not like Montreal has many right-handed defensive prospects. Mayu, I think. Mayu. Yeah, well, I mean, look, I, that's a touchy subject for everybody. Yeah, but, uh, I'm just saying. Look, like, like, he's just looked really good. Yeah, yeah we're, we're going to stick to the hockey with him. Yeah, we're <laughs> just, it just, it sucks. All the baggage sucks, but my job or what I do on Twitter is evaluate players on ice. And the politics aside, because that is a problem and that is going to have to be handled by the Habs, the player, for someone who hasn't played in a year, as we just talked about with Shane Wright, hit the ground running. Like six point, he's, a, he's got a six game point streak. Point per game. Uh, he's already, I think, the second highest point getter on defense for the London Knights. Like he, he's the number one D right off the bat. Yeah, and I think, I'll, you know, if everything can check out and and and, and you know the, the hockey community can accept him back in, and the Canadians do eventually sign him, I think that's a top four right-handed shot, no problem. Even po- possibly a number three if all goes well. But if you can get that number one in front of him, if you can get Nemich in front of him, and you run something like Romanov, Nemich, Guli, uh, Mayu as a top four, your defense is set and you can focus on building your forwards. And that's what next draft looks like or the tail end of 2022 in the first round and the beginning in the second. So this yeah. is your strategy. Which brings but- me to the, uh, the trade rumors because now the Canadians being where they're at, uh, they are going to get, uh, the vultures are circling. And there's going to be people wanting to pick up some of these players, especially with the, uh, they, they made the Stanley cup final last year. So the recency bias is there. Uh, they, they've seen these guys perform. So Sherratt, clearly he's going to be traded more than likely for a late first round pick. Uh, yep. And right now I uh, believe the rumors are that Florida, Calgary, and St. Louis are all interested in him. You mentioned Drouin at the top of the show being a possibility to move. And one that's starting to blow up as of today, although there's been rumors about him for a couple of weeks now, is Arturi Lekkanen. Years, I would say. <laughs> the only reason Arturi Lekkanen is probably still a Montreal Canadian is because Mark Bergevin loves him to death. And who can blame him, to be honest? I mean, I if you're looking for really, really a Selkie-style winger, that's the guy. Yeah. I mean, well, his yeah. his... His XGF is like hands he's 59.67 right now or whatever. And the closest to him, I don't even think has 50 on the team. (laughs) No. So yeah, but it's what a lot of that is. A lot of that is a lack of finish pun intended with him. It's just unfortunate (laughs) that, you know, they just don't go in because he looks like a 20 goal scorer on the ice, but it just doesn't go in. I'm very thankful that it went in when it needed to this Mm, summer. He is a clutch scorer. Yeah. Like, I'm gonna leave him that. He, I love his playoff goals. They're always hilarious. Going back to like 2017 till now, like it's just been fun. But if you know there was a deal, uh, I believe it was uh, with St. Louis where it almost happened last year, where I believe it was Sammy Blair for for Lekkonen that was being discussed. That almost happened. I know that Buffalo desperately wanted a guy like Lekkonen uh, two years ago as well. Bergevin held off on that as well. Uh, there is no more Bergevin. And no. One thing to look at and one thing to keep in mind is if Lekkonen does move, keep an eye on Gallagher. Because those two are like this. Yeah, they are. And they're... those are the 
basically once price goes, it's, it's Gally and Lekkonen that have been there the longest. And if you get rid of Lekkonen, well, I don't think that Gallagher has much that he would want to do here in Montreal long-term. So that's another well, thing. Well, those two play, um, I, th- I think they play Call of Duty Everything. together. Everything. All the time. They play everything together. Yeah. And they, no matter what game they play, they play it together. So it's, you know, if you were to make a move like that and it checks out, you know, I, I keep an eye on Gallagher for the next, you know, six months, maybe in the off season, but yeah. Lekkonen makes sense because he's going to want the same contract that Armia got. And I'm, I am frankly exhausted with paying bottom six players more than I pay top six players. You know, yes. the, the Habs, fourth line i believe at the beginning of the season was more expensive than their first line i don't know if you remember that it was like lekin and pocket and armia and then suzuki caulfield to was making less so it it, it, to me it boggles the mind um but at the same time you have the opportunity and this is what covid december offered the canadians Uh, an ability to look into what's coming and i think jesse ulanen made it extremely plausible to trade uh, a guy like Arturi Lekkonen. Because he is stepping up his game. He's yeah. he's lighting it no, up in the battle right now. Point per game. Yeah. Point per game. And it's, he's not even scratched the surface offensively. All you're seeing right now is his good five-on-five five play. Yeah. Wait till they start using him as a trigger man on the power play. Wait till he starts expressing himself on the rush. Um, if he can translate the game that he used to play in Finland on smaller ice, which is hilarious because he's actually better on smaller ice than larger ice. Yeah. Um, it's, I think... He could go as far as top six. Even if he doesn't, I, if he ends up as a third liner. That'd be amazing. He, could, he would be a, he would like Lekkonen. He would be a beauty third liner, in my opinion. I just want to point out that in 2018 at the Dallas draft, I took a picture with Alexander Romanov and Jesse Yelonen, not Kotniemi. And those two seem to have a brighter future than Kotniemi. There we I'm go. Just throwing it out there. I'm just throwing there it out there. There we go. And both times you interrupted their Pizza Hut. I'm just saying. Just saying. Look, career changing. Uh, <laughs> Romanov is, to me, like I said, it, it's not a problem at all. Um, I just think we need to get Dominic Ducharme the hell away from him. But definitely. Uh, Does Ducharme stay? No. Because I Hughes was kind of, I want the right coach for the team or the right team. He never really said he. Never said anything bad about Ducharme, but he's never really. Never, you never do. You never yeah. ever do. Yeah, he was very political but, when it came to Dom Ducharme. I mean, yeah, how many co- how it, many GMs have shown up and kept the the coach that was in place? Well, Not very many, if any. Everyone's talking about uh, what's his name in Colorado because uh, he had a three hundred winning percentage his first year too. Ednar, Ednar, yeah. and so people are saying. Yeah, but Sackick hired him. I, I'm not a Ducharme fan. I never was. So I guess it doesn't really, I think he was a product of good team. He was a coached good team. He's good coach on good teams. Yeah. Look, uh, how, how do I put this lately? Um, Dominic Ducharme is a coach that has a style and needs a certain group of players to be able to execute it. If he doesn't have those players, that's what frustrates me is he has, he then focuses and relies on the type of players that he's grown to like over time. And you look at players that he leans on more. You look at guys like Jake Evans, you look at guys like uh, Yo Armia, you look at guys like Lekkonen, um, guys that inexplicably are getting like 19 minutes of game since he started, since he was there. And this is kind of an extension of Claude Julien, but he, he just took it and ran. And that's my issue is that it frustrates me 
because when he used to coach the Mooseheads, it was meritocracy the whole way. And now it, it almost seems like he wants to rely on these veterans because he doesn't trust certain younger players. And it irks me because it's not just one guy. It's not just Romanov, not just Caulfield. Like we had COVID December and Caulfield was still on the third line and Alex fucking Belzil was making like 16 minute <laughs> games of his time with the Canadians goes on waivers and no one even tries to pick him up. What does that tell you? It tells you that you're playing the wrong guy too much. Yeah. So, you know, well, it's the same me, thing with uh pocket right now over Pizzetta. Pizzetta clearly outplaying him and he's yeah, getting eight true. minutes a night while pockets getting 16. Yeah, Paling's, Paling's playing good hockey and he's getting nine minutes a night and he's yeah. playing good hockey. Well, I mean, in December, like when everybody was out, he was getting like 16 minutes. Yeah. Like we'll give him that. We'll give him that. But yeah, last night, like he looked great last night. What are you doing giving him nine minutes a game or 10 minutes a game? Like exactly. he should be playing. And, and this is, this is where it frustrates me with Ducharme. When a player is hot, when a player is on, he doesn't take advantage of it for longer than a hot flash. And that's the issue. And then a good a piece of good fortune will happen, like in the playoffs where he finally decided to dress Cockney goal. He finally decided to dress Caulfield goal. All of a sudden it's like, oh, well, it's Ducharme. He, he came up with it. Yeah, but he's the one who sat them in the first place. And I mean, Lekin and Paling and Caulfield had a great line going for four or five games. They were the best that's, line on the team. That's, that's it. And then he and then he then he got nope, broke it all up. Lekin's on the first line, Caulfield's on the fourth line, Paling's might dress, he might not. I don't know yet. Exactly. And to me, like I said, it's just inconsistent uh roster or line building, I should say. Roster building, not his job, but line building and strategy. Not having Cole Caulfield on a five on three is is criminal. Oh, it's that was disgusting. Yeah, like how you don't have a defenseman at the top, the, the alignment or Petrie, I couldn't care. They don't have to shoot. Please don't shoot from the point ever on a five on three. And then you have Caulfield on one end, Mike Hoffman on the other, and then Nick Suzuki behind the net and Tyler Toffoli in front of it or whomever in front of it, like Dvorak or whatever, and run with that. It's not hard. It's a five on three that was built for you. And you have two of the better shooters available. Well, I mean, come on better. now. Whoa, whoa. How is Petrie going to get his point shot on the power play if we don't do it that way? I mean, I, I, have, a, I have an opinion about Jeff Petrie's point shot, and it's, um, fuck Jeff Petrie's point shot. <laughs> as much as he scored goals, his best goals and his most consistent goals have come from wrist shots in the slot because he skated yep. that motherfucking puck in the slot. Yeah. What Jeff Petrie doesn't do? Go to the slot. He doesn't do that anymore. Notice how the offense has dried up. His one goal that he scored, he went in the slot. He went down low. On a His design points that he's play. getting, he get he just goes go to the danger area. And I think that that is again strategy. How this is not being hammered into the players, how it's not being understood, brings us back to coaching. And so I know a lot of people will say, "Oh, it's easy to blame the coach." Absolutely, it super is. GMs do it all the time. And they do it to save their job. So as a fan, and you realize this, there are better candidates that could probably go about handling this situation better and firing up the players better. I do not feel intimidated watching a guy like Dominic Ducharme in the room. I'm sorry. And I've, I've seen him in the room. I've seen him in Halifax. I've walked into that room. It's not intimidating. You know, like there are options like Benoit Gou in Syracuse. That's an intimidating presence. And you can ask anybody that's ever been to Syracuse or played for the crunch. He gets the best out of his players and he develops players. That's one. 
Joel Bouchard could easily come back and take that position. He doesn't look like uh, doesn't look like Dallas Eakins is moving in Anaheim because they're looking to make the playoffs this year. So he might have actually lost that bet going to Anaheim and thinking he was going to get a head coaching job before <laughs> Ducharme. Um, and then you know the out chance, and this is someone that I didn't want as a GM, but makes a ton of sense as coach. Patrick Wong would be an awesome coach. You know, I don't give, I don't, uh, I don't want a hot-headed GM. I do not want a GM that coaches with, with, with that GMs with his emotions because we had that for nine years. But man, do I want that as a coach? Well, just his man, first game I, in the NHL, that that he was flyer facing the boards. Yeah, yeah. Oh was that with Bruce Boudreaux? I think. Yes, yeah. it was. Yeah, yeah. And when was he was it, in Minnesota like, was it against Mini. Yeah, exactly. There you go. So it was. I want that as a coach in Montreal. And you, no one's going to second guess Patrick Roy. Like, no one second-guessed Guy Carboneau. No one's going to second-guess Patrick Roy. Patrick Roy is going to hold the media accountable if they overstep. Uh, Patrick Roy is going to throw himself on the line uh, if uh, his, you know, a player, uh, you know, does something wrong, unless your name is Matt Duchesne, in which case, eat shit, apparently. <laughs> but if you have a guy like Roy as a coach, I feel like he's going to be able to extract more. And I think the players are going to respect him more as well uh, when he says something. And I know a lot of people will be like, but... Wayne Gretzky was the best player in the world and uh, nobody respected him much when he was a coach. Yeah. But I, I, I mean, it was Arizona and that was a really weird setting. This is Montreal, the Montreal Canadians, Patrick Roy, his, his number is right there. Like, yeah. think, think about it this way. So I, I'm not championing him for the role, but I do think that I've already named three candidates that could probably do a better job. Greg? I picked Blaine Potvin. Blaine Potvin as coach of the Montreal Canadiens. That'd be fun. Well, I have won a couple of Adam League championships as a coach. I, I won a lacrosse league championship as a coach, but uh, I don't know if that counts in hockey. Um, My U11 champ. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I was the uh, I was the equipment manager for the championship Halifax movesets. That's, that's what I got. There you go. My equipment manager, I just brought them water because I got free tickets. <laughs> but hey, I mean Nathan McKinnon was a great dude, so he didn't mind, and we we had some good fun. So he it's did, uh, he didn't tell you what you could or couldn't eat. No, actually, that's a load of crap because he was having a cheeseburger right in front of me, man. Yeah, he used to consume a lot of other things too. Wow, I've seen him downtown consuming a lot of things. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, look, Nate. Uh, Nate is a tremendous athlete, uh, respect him to death, uh, makes millions of dollars and puts his body through hell to be in the shape that he's in. Uh, you know, in, in French, we say, he can definitely do what he wants. Exactly. And, and this is a kid that as soon as he, you could tell in the warmups of his first Q game, he was going to be a star. I mean, my that, God. That first Oh my God. I cannot, I remember that game. Like it was yesterday. It was like, yeah. comes onto the ice first shift, like 60 seconds in the offensive zone, two posts. And you're like, what? Yeah. It was, Sorry, it was know, just something to behold. That's why and that's, you always got to be careful with, with junior players because Jonathan Drew, looked better. Yeah. And, but with Drew, he's also had other things that have gotten in the way, his mental health and all that. And that's why I think with him being in the, uh, the trade talks now, that might be good for him to move somewhere. Yeah. Even I think so. Colorado would be great. 
Yeah, it would make sense. I think Colorado makes sense. Um, you know, they may want something of an insurance policy in case, you know, Burakovsky prices himself out or they lose Kadri and stuff like that. And they move Newhook to, to the second line center position and whatnot. I could see it. But I mean, there's going to be uh, uh, David Panyota from uh, fourth period said like there's a couple of teams. So yeah, I don't think that his contract is as bad as anyone else says. Like he's right where he should be in terms of value. 5.5 million for a player that's making that is on pace for 50 points. Like that's, that's exactly what it is. And I think he could probably get more on a better team. And I think that's what GMs are looking at. Yeah. And if, I wouldn't be surprised to see a first round pick come back the other way. Oh yeah. 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 I think, I think it's a first and a prospect, honestly. Yeah. Do, you he's got that they, extra year. do you think the Canadians make a ton of moves at the trade deadline or just a few? I think they're going to make at least two moves that we see coming like a Lekkanen and Sherratt trade. And I think there's going to be one move where we're going to be like, Oh, and yeah, right I, now I, we're thinking, Oh, but I think yeah. it might become obvious maybe two or three weeks before the draft. Uh, before the trade deadline. Because yeah. I think they're going to do a lot in the offseason. I think they're going to yeah. do be a lot of oh, yeah. moving in the oh, offseason. Yeah. But I, that's when it happens, right? Like, especially yeah. with the cap being the way it is. And now teams are, like, waiting until the trade deadline exactly because they want to accrue the maximum amount of cap space because that cap space accrued over time. Like, 200K that you accrue over, like, the next two months is worth a million at the trade deadline. So yeah. you have to take that into consideration and teams want to maximize that. Now, you got a guy like Ben Sherratt that's only making, what, 3.25 or 3.5 million. You can retain 50% because his contract's expiring. And that's a $1.6 million player on a full year and would only count in real dollars. As, as I think it's like 315000 So yeah. by not trading for him from now until deadline, you can basically afford him. So that's why teams are taking their time. Yeah. If a team gets desperate and pays a little bit more, well, then, then we'll see. I think then they might pull the trigger early. Yeah, I, I do see Hughes being very, very uh, busy and active yeah. on this deadline. And no, what he does in this trade deadline and right before the draft this summer, those two moments, I think, will set the entire foundation for whatever his plan is. So we'll know if it's a full rebuild or not. I think you'll know well before the moves. I think once they've done their evaluation, once they've looked at this team, once they've set up the trade deadline board, I think an announcement will be made on what the direction of this team is. And if it's nothing, if it's just a retool, I'd be cautiously optimistic because maybe a retool in better hands, in more hands, uh, might might actually work because there are good pieces on this team. The main young pieces of the last retool are still on this team. So it's not like you're building from nothing. It's not like you're, you're Buffalo or Ottawa and you're, you're starting from scratch again or Arizona. It's you need to build upon the young players you have and move out the veterans. And if you can do that, then you're going to be successful. So it's going to be a delicate subject because rebuild is apparently taboo in Montreal. Uh, only franchise to never rebuild intentionally of, yeah. as of now. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely something they're going to have to keep an eye out for. And honestly, I hope that they're able to do it. Um, I'm, I'm personally hoping for a rebuild, but I can negotiate in between. I'm, uh, I'm a little bit concerned about what the response will be in the public when they say that it's time that Carey Price moves on. He is asked to, he has asked to move on and we're going to give it to him. 
So when that comes out, I think it's going to be a big, big issue. Yeah, well, I mean, Gary Prince is the right to leave. <laughs> you know, at the end of the day, that's that's what he's got to do. And it's his choice. He's got a no-movement clause, a full no-movement clause, not like Gallagher or Petrie where it's, you know, uh, modified. So they only have, uh, I believe it's five and seven teams that there's, or 15 teams that can't be traded to. Uh, Price literally cannot move if he doesn't want to. So if he wants to go, then you got to you, you got to do what you got to do. And yeah, the return might not be stupendous, uh, but you know you have to do right by him because he did right by the organization for so long and carried it basically on his back for so many years that his knees can't handle it anymore. <laughs> and on that note, speaking of time to go, uh, we've taken up. T- enough of your time so okay before we let you go why don't you let our listeners know where they can find you and what they can expect in the next couple of months coming from you so uh, i can be found at the hockey expert on twitter and scrimmage and stats.com uh basically going to be releasing draft content which is hella pretty uh pretty relevant right now for canadian fans but uh i definitely uh should be releasing more articles and of course, uh, you know, more rankings between now and July. Well, Marco, thank you very much for coming on the show. We, uh, we appreciate your time and you are more than welcome to come back anytime that you're willing to, uh, to waste your time with us. Never a waste of time. Thank you for having me. Uh, look forward to doing this again, closer to the draft. Definitely. Sounds good. All right. Thank you very much. And to our listeners, thank you for listening. And remember when, if you are talking about it, so are we. Be sure to go to habsunfiltered.net to check out all the great giveaways, all the great sponsors, all the promo codes for each sponsor to save you money on amazing products. Do, did, will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Crier Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks, Undercurrent Podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holowaty from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Crier Media Network. 
I'm Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people. He, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from JeffWoodsRadio.com.